Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Vallée, Associate Fellow in the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative. For the next few weeks, I'm talking with subject matter experts to explain issues of peace, security, and international cooperation. Thanks for tuning in. Current tensions and flashpoints across the globe remind us not only that escalations into armed confrontations are possible, they also feed the technological development of weapons and the recent years have also shown that negotiations and efforts at arms control can stall or even suffer setbacks. Yet the crises are also the reason that they need to be kept going or to resume. To discuss the situation, I'm joined this week by Mr. Marc Finot. Marc Finot is the head of arms proliferation activities on the staff of the GCSP. He is a former French diplomat who was seconded to the GCSP from 2004 to 2013. Mr. Finot joined the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs back in 1977 and along with postings in Leningrad, as it was then, Warsaw, Tel Aviv, and Sydney, much of his career was connected to the Conference for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and also the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva, as well as to the French delegation to the United Nations. As well as a diplomat and practitioner, Marc Finot was a lecturer on arms control and disarmament for a postgraduate course at the Marne-la-Vallée University, And along with frequent media appearances, he is a very prolific author of numerous articles, chapters of books on arms control and disarmament, as well as on the Middle East and international humanitarian law. In addition, from August 2013 to May 2015, Marc Finot was the Senior Resident Fellow at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, UNIDIR. Throughout this year, Marc Finot is leading the July and November courses on building arms control capacities in the Middle East and North Africa region, and two in April and December on building capacities for effective implementation of the Arms Trade Treaty. So you see, we have here a very knowledgeable person on the issues of arms control. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us and welcome to the podcast, Marc. Thank you, Paul, for the invitation and and the kind introduction. (laughs) You're welcome. My first question to you is to resume and get our, our listeners uh, into uh, the, the issue, which, are, which is complex. So which arms control negotiations are underway, which have been paused, and which are envisioned because of technological or diplomatic developments, but have not yet been formally started between the interested parties? Yes, actually, you pointed to these uh, different categories of, of negotiations or discussions. Um, so maybe just um, let's identify these categories. First, there are, of course, the bilateral negotiations, mainly between the United States and, and the Russian Federation. Everybody knows that the main treaty on arms control for nuclear weapons, the New START Treaty, just expired at the beginning of uh, this year, but it was extended by the new Biden administration for five years. But after this time, there will be a need for uh, successive treaty. So negotiations haven't really started between U.S. and Russia. There'll, there'll probably be a summit meeting uh, to launch these uh, new talks, but th- this is expected. At the moment, negotiations, if any, are taking place most probably within the administration, within the, the U.S. actors, the Pentagon, State Department, the president, etc. Of course, taking into account the, the arms industry uh, lobby, which is a very important actor in, in this field. Then you have the regional negotiations or talks, uh, mainly between, within the OSCE. Um, and uh, they've been dormant for many years. Unfortunately, uh, these are so-called 
confidence and security building measures and the, the conventional forces in Europe treaty. Of course, this is uh, related to the, uh, the tensions and, and the conflict and in Georgia and in Ukraine. So that the, these agreements, unfortunately, have been, in a sense, put to sleep or mothballs. But there is uh, interest and there is pressure uh, to, to resume these talks because of precisely of the, of the current tension. Then you have the whole spectrum of multilateral treaties, agreements, conferences, treaty bodies, which are, uh, in a sense, uh, ongoing, ongoing discussions, ongoing talks, but not necessarily negotiations of new agreements. The main forum is the Conference on Disarmament, based here in Geneva, with, with limited uh, uh, composition, supposedly negotiating on behalf of the international community, but it actually has stopped negotiating new agreements since 1996. The last agreement it adopted was the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Since then, it has been unable to agree by consensus on uh, its program of work to negotiate new agreements. But it doesn't mean that it, it has stopped working. There are a number of issues on its agenda, uh, mainly nuclear disarmament, negative security assurances, meaning commitments of nuclear weapon states not to attack non-nuclear weapon states with nuclear weapons, the so-called fissile material cutoff treaty, which means prohibition of production of fissile material for nuclear weapons, and outer space, prevention of an arms race in outer space. So all these items are still under discussion, but there's no consensus to negotiate new agreements. Then you have the whole series of treaty bodies, existing treaties with the, their own framework, their own organizations like the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was which entered into force over 50 years ago, of course, is monitored or the at least the commitment of non-nuclear weapon states not to acquire nuclear weapons is monitored by the, the Vienna-based International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA. Then, but the treaty also has its own life. Every five years, it meets. The states parties meet for to review implementation of the treaty. And the last, the most recent conference was supposed to be held last year. It was postponed to this year in August, but we still don't know whether it will take place because of the pandemic. Then you have the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which is a paradox because it's been adopted, open for signature, signed by many countries, ratified by many countries, but it's still not in force because it still lacks ratification of eight countries which are mentioned uh, in the treaty uh, without uh, ratification of which the treaty cannot enter into force. But it has its, its life, its monitoring agency also based in Vienna. And uh, so that mobilizes all community. Then you have the Chemical Weapons Convention, which entered into force in 1997, which also has its organization for verifying implementation based in The Hague, the uh, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which meets regularly or constantly and uh, occasionally reviews the treaty, uh, amends the treaty, or uh, adopts decisions. Then you have the Biological Weapons Convention, which doesn't have a verification regime, but meets regularly here in Geneva to promote implementation, 
exchange confidence building measures and discuss new ways to promote implementation of the convention. Then you have a series of treaties dealing with conventional armaments. We, so far, we talked mostly about weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, chemical, and biological. All the rest is conventional. So you have the arms trade treaty, which is not a disarmament treaty, but it's supposed to regulate uh, international trade in conventional arms. It has a secretariat also based in Geneva and, and states parties meet regularly. The anti-personal landmine treaty, the cluster munitions treaty, the convention on certain conventional weapons. All these treaties have their own mechanisms, uh, implement, implementation support units, and experts meet regularly to assess their implementation. Then you have the newest treaty adopted in 2017, which entered into force in January this year, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is in force, which has been signed and ratified by over 50 states to enter into force. And this is the youngest treaty, uh, which is very controversial. It's been, of course, rejected, opposed by uh, nuclear armed states and their allies. But it has, it, it's starting its life. It will have its first meeting of state parties in January next year. And then you have the new issues, which you mentioned, the potential agreements on uh, new types of weapons, like cyber weapons or autonomous weapon systems, like so-called killer robots, or the use of explosive weapons in populated areas, or hypersonic weapons, so space weapons. All these are new technologies, which, of course, can be used for hostile purposes. And there are already some discussions, not on all of them. And at this stage, there is no consensus, no agreement to adopt new agreements. Although I would say the one which is pro most likely to see basic understanding or agreement would be autonomous weapon systems. So this is really an oversight of all these uh, agreements and treaties which are under discussion or negotiation. Well, thank you very much. The, this was a, indeed a, also a very clear oversight. And, and in part, it's uh, uh, also answered a bit of my, my second question, but uh, perhaps you can elaborate a little bit because as you described, not only the different uh, frameworks, but also the different categories of uh, weapons, my second question is precisely on the, these categories. And uh, well, could it be said that uh, those categories of weapons that have been an object of negotiation for a long time actually get attended to in priority in the negotiations? Or you know, do the newer categories uh, benefit from that experience to suggest that a negotiation could be open on them, but they're not yet subject to this kind of negotiation between parties. Yes, obviously the main uh, driver, the main motivation to negotiate arms control agreements or disarmament has been to promote national security, limit the use of the most destabilizing weapons or the most the weapons which they, the, the most severe humanitarian consequences uh, in conflict, where now we know that uh, most victims are civilian. So obviously there are weapons which you may consider at first less problematic, like small arms and light weapons, because with you know, a gun or even a machine gun, you could, of course you can kill a few people in a short time, but not huge quantities of, of people. But the problem is, 
proliferation of these and uncontrolled proliferation, illicit trafficking in these weapons, which have been spreading all over the globe. You know, the estimate is now one billion small arms and light weapons and ammunition for these weapons are produced every year in the in the numbers of billions, something like 14 billion pieces of ammunition every year. That's enough to kill the world population twice every year. At the same time, you have these weapons which have been considered as weapons of deterrence, like nuclear weapons, which we know, of course, if they were used intentionally or accidentally, would cause huge casualties, huge damage. And if, of course, they were if they were used on a large scale, they would even they could lead to the end of humanity. Mm-hmm. So this this is the reason why priority have been put until recently, mostly on nuclear weapons, first in a way of preventing their spread, that's the non-proliferation treaty, but also to promote disarmament and elimination of these weapons, which was also part of the deal in the NPT, but where you see that depending on how you look at it, there's been huge progress in reducing the numbers from the 70,000 nuclear weapons in during the Cold War in the 80s down to 13,000. You could say that's major progress, but 13,000 is already enough to exterminate humanity several times. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to do to move towards a nuclear weapon-free world, which is sort of long-term objective that everybody agrees. So that's why there, uh, you know, for this reason of both humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons and higher risk of their use, which is the result of first, slow progress in disarmament, second, more actors, because proliferation could not be completely stopped, and also evolutions in doctrines, you know, from nuclear deterrence, non-use of weapons to actual scenarios of nuclear battle, nuclear uh, use of weapons in doctrines, but also in in types of weapons which have been introduced in arsenals, like low-yield nuclear weapons, tactical weapons, cruise missiles, which are more maneuverable. And then now we have a new category, which is hypersonic Mm -hmm. missiles, which could be used also with conventional uh, systems or nuclear weapons, and then could actually be an incentive for first strike to destroy or weaken the uh, um, adversary's retaliation capability. So that would uh, unset, uh, unsettle this uh, delicate strategic balance or balance of terror on which nuclear deterrence uh, relied for so many years. So that explains why there is this new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons to put pressure on nuclear weapon states to move uh, faster on a nuclear disarmament. Mm-hmm. But these new categories of weapons, which are mentioned, you know, cyber attacks, use of artificial intelligence, hypersonic uh, missiles, all these are types of weapons which, together with existing nuclear weapon systems, contribute to lower the threshold of use and encourage first use uh, you have this, of course, this constant struggle between defensive systems and offensive systems. And when when you have systems which are meant to bypass defenses, like hypersonic systems, 
then, of course, it's an incentive to use them in the first place. Well, that's also, of course, uh, uh, very interesting. And I was wondering, uh, in your experience and your knowledge of the, the history of this, whether we have an idea which frameworks of negotiation, whether they're bilateral or multilateral, that have proven a bit more effective in reaching a solution, such as, of course, uh, concluding an agreement? Well, um, actually, it's, it's been a sort of combination of both. If you take nuclear weapons, obviously, it started arms control discussions, negotiations started after the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the world, the world you know, became at, at the brink of uh, nuclear war. So it was realized that something needed to be done, at least to start with the countries with the largest arsenal the U.S. and the Soviet Union and, and then Russia. So that's why they started their bilateral talks, the SALT uh, and then the STAR, the anti-ballistic missile uh, treaty, and then the intermediate uh, range n- uh, nuclear force treaty, INF. So all these were bilateral agreements which were meant to stabilize this uh, arms race, to to channel that arms race, to prevent destabilizing um, development. In some cases, this bilateral experience was extended to a multilateral framework. While it's clear, for instance, that the non-proliferation treaty could not have existed without a sort of basic understanding between the US and the Soviet Union, which was then extended multilaterally. The same happened with biological weapons. It was uh, an initiative by President Nixon in 1969 to unilaterally cancel the offensive biological programs of the U.S. and to propose to the Soviet Union to follow suit. And when that agreement was uh, concluded, then it could be extended to to the rest of the world. And chemical weapons also started, of course, in a multilateral framework, but there were stages in the negotiation where things could only move after a bilateral agreement was concluded. So, again... You know, there is no magic solution, magic bullet. You also need uh, the political uh, will, the political momentum, the, the proper uh, understanding of national interest and, and common interest. So now, obviously, there is a, a great interest and great pressure to use this bilateral experience more in the multilateral frameworks for nuclear disarmament. For instance, there are discussions which are multilateral on nuclear disarmament verification, mm-hmm. which we think would be only based on bilateral experience. Now, there is agreement to expand this experience. And of course, this is sensitive because you cannot you know, um, spread all sensitive information that could be used by some countries to acquire nuclear weapons. So that has to be uh, uh, organized. And there are systems where this is possible to um, to combine, to reconcile this need for confidentiality and the in, the interest of the international community. Well, um, ever since the international campaign to ban landmines, uh, civil society advocacy, as well as activism, added themselves to indeed this activity by the states to become actors uh, in in the arm com- in the arms control. So that was in a field in which states usually allowed anyone else than the officials to uh, take, a, take a role. So, uh, of course, uh, the, the states were the first initiators and negotiators. But uh, has the trend that 
the successful international campaign to ban landmines opened, uh, been able to continue uh, to this day? Yes, it uh, had actually not only continued, but it has expanded. Well, the, the starting point was the end of the Cold War, so with less uh, confrontation between blocs and the awareness, the rising awareness that in most conflicts, which were mostly internal conflicts, civil wars, not so much interstate conflicts, the vast majority of victims were civilians. So it was natural that it came from civil society, organizations, uh, Nobel Prize winners, etc., to, to make progress towards agreements, which of course had to be negotiated and adopted by states, but which had as, as, the main, as a main motivation, the main paradigm was to protect civilians, to promote what is called human security or humanitarian disarmament. So that was the trend that started in the, in the 90s, which continued after the uh, landmine uh, ban uh, with the cluster munitions uh, treaty, also the arms trade treaty, where the first uh, treaty dealing with armaments, which has as one of its main objectives to reduce human suffering. So you see really the, the humanitarian paradigm is, is very strong. And that was also the main uh, reason why the, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was initiated by civil society groups to, you know, who campaigned and then convinced a number of states to support, to champion that cause, and eventually to adopt a, a treaty. So that trend is continuing precisely because potential victims of conflict are uh, still civilians. And it doesn't, of course, prevent states from combining this humanitarian motivation with protection of their national interests. And this is being done throughout the negotiating process. But the result is precisely this combination of national security interest and global humanitarian interest, which is now the main characteristics of these agreements. Thank you very much. Well, uh, we're getting on a, a bit with, with time, but I'd like to ask you uh, one uh, last question that uh, takes us, of course, to uh, to our immediate context. And uh, um, as you know, we have a, a set of current international tensions in, in, in different regions. And, and of course, uh, these are not only recent, but they've been developing for a few years uh, as well, too. So um, should we actually fear that this current set of tensions could slow down those arms control negotiations that are actually underway? Of course, it's, it's always a risk. But when you look back at history, you, you realize that most international agreements, bilateral or multilateral, were adopted in times of high tensions during the, the Cold War. Uh, you know, 1968, uh, when the NPT was adopted, there was uh, invasion of Czechoslovakia, steel war in uh, the Vietnam War, etc. It always happened. And the, the main conclusion that we should keep in mind is that precisely we need these negotiations, these this, uh, arms control agreements, more than ever when there are international tensions. You, you of course, re, you allude to the, the current violence in the Middle East. Uh, obviously, this brings back to the uh, top of the agenda these, these attempts which have been ongoing to limit or prohibit the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. You know, there, this, this is a, a typical humanitarian motivated negotiation or agreement 
which will have major consequences, major positive consequences, again, benefiting civilians. So, you know, this, this is the same with what's, what's been hap happening in the uh, OSCE uh, because of the tensions with Russia after the, the war in Georgia and the invasion of Crimea and, and the tensions in Ukraine. You know, it was considered to freeze all the, the existing agreements, which is exactly the contrary of what should be done. Now, now more than ever, when there are tensions, when there are risks of uh, escalation getting out of control, we need these uh, all these types of confidence-building measures, transparency measures, communications between the military to avoid conflicts. The same between India and Pakistan, you know, which were on the brink of uh, nuclear war several times. Uh, it always starts with a conventional conflict, and, but we need to prevent any escalation leading to a potential nuclear war. Uh, obviously, it's a, a central uh, topic to international uh, security, and we could uh, talk about it for, for hours, but uh, you've really managed to give us a, a very extensive analysis in the, the, the course of this uh, half hour. So it's all we have time for today, but I want to thank you very much, uh, Marc, uh, if you know, to, uh, for this extensive analysis and uh, really something that uh, our, our listeners will enjoy. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. So to our listeners, I wish that you can join us again next week to learn more about issues on peace, security and international cooperation. So please don't forget that you can still subscribe to us on Anchor FM, on Apple iTunes, you can follow us on Spotify, and on SoundCloud. I'm Dr. Paul Valley with the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and until next week, bye for now. Bye.